Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today it's my great pleasure to be joined by Monique Ingalls, author of the new book, Singing the Congregation, How Contemporary Worship Music Forms Evangelical Community, published in 2018 by Oxford University Press. Monique is Associate Professor of Music, Church Music, Graduate Program Director, and on the Affiliated Faculty of Religion at Baylor University. Monique, thanks for being here, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Ryan. It's great to be here. I appreciate the invitation. Well, Monique, I'm so excited to get into this book with you. But before we do, I wonder if you might be willing to share with us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So, uh, well, as you already said, I uh, I teach at Baylor. I have the the distinct privilege. I love. Um, I'm a, the graduate student program director. I um, teach a lot of doctoral courses related to congregational singing. So many of my own ideas about research um, germinate from uh, from ideas in the in the class. So I consider myself, you know, really fortunate to have teaching and research be so uh, so closely connected. But my own background. So I, I grew up in, I'm an insider to some degree uh, to the community that, that I, uh, that my, my book is about, that my book focuses on. I was raised in a, um, uh, in a self-described fundamentalist actually church. So a church on um, somewhat of the right margins of the phenomenon that, uh, that I'm studying. And I got interested in um, music and its role in worship as, as a very early age. I'm a pianist. I would play for church uh, around junior high. The, the worship wars, what are called these uh, conflicts over musical style came to my church. <laughs> and um, I watched you know, I, I, I watched and I listened as church leadership and as people, you know, disagreed and, and talked over what different styles meant. And I was I was curious at that point, it was framed as very much an either or, you know, this idea of worship wars as a zero sum game that it either, you know, could only be traditional or uh, contemporary. And I remember at the time, although I didn't have the words to say it quite this way, like, why why can't it be both and? What is it about? What is it about these, you know, these styles and what they mean that uh, that that makes people pit them against one another? So that was something that I carried with me through, um, you know, undergraduate into graduate school. I saw a golden opportunity to be able to. Um, to research this area, which surprisingly not many people were uh, were doing at the time, though I've been so pleased to see in the last 10 or so years, just a proliferation of studies on contemporary worship um, within evangelical and charismatic circles, kind of as liturgy, as well as contemporary worship, the music that, that comes from that. That's wonderful, Monique. So, much of the data that this book is built upon is original ethnographic field notes. 
I wonder if you might be willing to tell us a little bit about your your research methodology and, and how you collected your data. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in in designing my study initially, um, I I was <laughs> there were several points that I was just I I was stumped. I felt like I kept running into a wall because I didn't want to. I knew that worship music was so much broader than uh, than the church. It was common to do a like a church based case study or maybe to choose three churches and do a you know comparative contrastive study uh, in there. But I thought, you know, this music is going on in, you know, in concerts. That was another venue was just to study it as popular music. But a lot of those studies that emphasized, you know, radio airplay and um uh, and then the concert scene, um, the how how Christian music had become, you know, kind of its own popular culture, had minimal interaction with the church, except just to say that you know there's some overlap here. So I um, I thought about how do I design a study that gets at all of these different dimensions, and my initial study uh, considered concert conference and church spaces as kind of as as three and i didn't think of it at that point so modes of congregating the way that i go on to describe them came a little bit later but that's the way that i tried to get at the phenomenon is okay i'm going to i was i moved to nashville tennessee which i figured you know this is at least at the time was the you know the center of the the commercial center for the christian music industry it's also the buckle of the bible belt so pretty easy to find churches singing this music. At one point I was attending, there was, there was one uh, Sunday. I remember I attended four churches. I was trying to keep my, uh, my foot in uh, charismatic Pentecostal kind of your uh, free church, non um, non charismatic, like your Baptist Methodist, and then your mainline um, liturgical uh, traditions that, that use contemporary worship. And uh there was one Sunday that I attended four services and I thought this is this is not productive. I need to I need to focus this down just a, you know a bit more than that. <laughs> and uh, out of that decision came the one church that is a case study focus in um, in my in my book rather than the initial three or five four pronged um, you know church case studies. But I was based through uh, through the first part of the research period. I was based in Nashville. And I was attending um, concerts that, you know, that came to the area, Christian singers who would come in and Nashville's a pretty big hub. So we would see, um, you know, a lot of the major um, kind of networks uh, represented like Bethel and Hillsong and some of the um, North American as well as global, um, globally significant worship um worship leaders and, and uh, groups came through came through there but i also went out to different um places that i identified as hubs for uh the creation of this music so for instance the passion conference was something that i followed very closely from the beginning it had been for a few years after starting in texas it had been based in nashville and then moved to atlanta so i made the trip the four hour you know drive to Atlanta quite quite a few times, as well as a few other stops um, in between. So it is, uh, in some ways, the study, it began as a, you know, sort of Nashville, I've got to live somewhere, right? So <laughs> I lived in Nashville, and, uh, it, you know, it expanded out to these areas where um, the second 
sort of part of the book came in was in reflecting on that work and thinking of, okay, what does this need to be, you know, a fully orbed, uh, fully orbed book? There are some, um, things that I, some dynamics that I had wanted to study that I didn't have a chance to do starting out with church and, um, and concert and conference. And so I, uh, expanded the earlier work, um, looking at, the um, the public space, so looking at the use of worship music in uh, praise marches. Uh, these were I'd say more common, I would say, in the in the 90s, at least in the North American setting. But there are still praise marches today um, that I mean, there are still praise marches among Protestants, evan- uh, evangelicals in Brazil that uh, that draw two and three million people, uh, kind of the Protestant alternative to carnival. So as far as a global phenomenon, these even though you know, those in North America that they might not be as familiar. Uh, I found a um, kind of stumbled upon while living in Toronto, this praise march that incorporated all of these different um, Christian denominations, as well as immigrant groups to Canada. So it was really a fascinating space to discover how uh, contemporary worship music was bringing together people, not just across, you know, denomination, but ethnic and national backgrounds as well. And then the final piece, uh, that the final component that's in my book is the, um, is the, the, the networked or, you know, worship, worship online, realizing that since the advent of YouTube and the fact that, you know, people, freely share these videos, um, you know, on their social media and, and, you know, with each other, that that had become not just a way of sharing worship, but actually could be looked at as a site itself for around which people congregated. So that was what um, spurred kind of the final piece of, of my book is realizing that, okay, this music is, of course, disseminated online, but you know, the internet, either whether you're talking about the individual video that people are saying, you know, that I'm, you know, uh, I'm praying as I'm watching this video on YouTube, you know, I have a worship time every morning, you know, where I watch these, these videos, or where, you know, online and offline <laughs> become interconnected, where churches, you know, I talk about one of these in, in, in the book that um, s- small churches who, um, want to do this style of music and don't have the personnel or at least don't feel like they can, you know, get the uh, the musical quality up to par, actually, you know, use YouTube videos and sing along with them on a Sunday morning. So kind of, uh, um, you know, I mean, church church karaoke, that's, I don't mean to be, you know, to be dismissive of the, of the practice, but um, Vivo Church, you know, using these official videos and, you know, and singing along with them. It's a way that what was produced and shared online has taken on a new, uh, a new life offline. Mm, That's wonderful, Monique. So we'll get into some of these different modes of congregating in just a second, but it seems that one of the key arguments of your book is that as evangelicals have largely embraced mass media culture into their public worship gatherings, this hasn't only changed the sound of their music making, yeah. but actually their their social structures and, and religious identity. Is that is that right? Is that the argument that you're trying to promote throughout your book? 
Absolutely. Yes. The, uh, you know, a couple of questions, a couple of kind of large scale questions that I've had in, you know, in my mind, and I know that, you know, other researchers have addressed through other means, you know, this, um, you know, a couple of them, you know, one, one related to evangelicals and the other related to, um, you know, kind of uh, Christian modes of um, modes of congregating, you know, one question, who who, who are evangelicals anyway? This question, this definitional question that I spend many pages of the introduction of this book trying to come to terms with because the term who identifies as an evangelical um, is fluid, you know, changes over time. It changed actually quite a bit as the result of the, the 2016 elections. So kind of wrestling with that, you know, people who would have called themselves evangelicals you know, before the, um, you know, the rise of, of Donald Trump and Trumpism, who are now no longer considering themselves to be in the fold. Anyway, the evangelical um, definition is complicated, and people have tried over the years to nail down evangelicals on, you know, they believe these four things, or they uh, they use these particular practices. Um, and, I, you know, so one of my thoughts, and of course, you know, the, the thought that would, of course, come from, you know, from a musicologist is what if what about a musical definition of evangelicals? What if evangelicals are the people who, by and large, sing this music? Um, what does that what does that mean? What would studying this music tell us about this group of people um, called evangelicals? And somewhat related to that, although, you know, not um related to the specific group, another question, what is what is a congregation in the 21st century? So um, as you mentioned, um, you know, our uh, media and communications technologies have revolutionized the way that we interact with each other. Um, and I just started to see in my work and uh, through what I described a minute ago with the networked congregations is that um, the way that people experience themselves together, how people do congregate for worship rather than how, you know, perhaps they feel like they should or how leaders are telling them that they, you know, that they should congregate for worship, that that wasn't something being um, being explored, at least in, in my own scholarly circles, in any detail. So in some ways, taking a, a more, an, a, you know, a, an empirical, <laughs> um, for a lack of a, you know, a better term, an experiential um, take, trusting and, uh, and trying to understand people's experience of gathering. Um, I, I know that there is a, um, you know, congregation, I use that to describe people who have gathered or assembled for the purpose of, of worship. And it doesn't imply a set structure or even a consistent group of people who are worshiping together. You know, a lot of the people that I spoke with see themselves as members of multiple worship gatherings. And, you know, they might we worship weekly at a church and during the semester, you know, at a college group or a Bible study. Every year they go to a particular conference and they keep up relationships with people, uh, you know, with people there. They, um, you know, have, have groups that they're part of through social media. They keep up with worship music through recordings. So all of those ways people are gathering for worship. Um, in all of these discrete ways that, you know, yes, they intersect, they overlap, but sometimes they come into some interesting, you know, uh, conflict and competition as well. Hmm. 
so fascinating. I'm tempted to dive into that further, but I'm going to move on for now. I wonder if you could tell us about the concert congregation. What's unique about this particular mode of gathering for Christian worship, and what are the consequences, good or bad, of you know of reframing a rock concert into a worship experience? Hmm. Yeah. It's a great question. And I, I, I think in some ways I, I start, so the book starts with the concert congregation chapter. That was a, in some ways, a, well, it was a deliberate decision. And I think the concert chapter is an excellent entry point into the others because it just takes, um, you know, it presents you first off with the, um, with the change that has happened since worship became a, you know, a highly valuable uh, commodity. And this is something um, I've done in previous work uh, that's that's referenced in this chapter, have done some work on when um, worship music was taken into sort of the, the core, the center of the Christian music industry um, and became part of radio airplay in the 80s and 90s, for instance, you have this distinction between praise and worship music on the one hand that for the most part, small church-based, um, uh, mostly charismatic publishing companies are, um, are putting out. And then CCM on the other, contemporary Christian music, which is music for listening that's getting radio airplay and yes of course there's overlap you know b- between the two we can think of examples of you know Amy Grant El Shaddai um, you know some of these uh, Michael some Michael W Smith songs that make it into churches but there are two in some ways separate industries and separate networks that come together around um, uh, for a variety of reasons. Again, another interview for for that one that come together uh, around the year 2000. And from then on, you now have it within the contemporary Christian music industry, you have kind of two options for people, uh, two, two streams. You used to have the kind of traditional contemporary Christian music artists who see themselves as, you know, writing songs to sing solo or as a group kind of for people's encouragement um, for people to listen to. But then you have others who are worship leaders or worship artists who are writing or performing songs that are that everyone's meant to sing together, that are meant to be adopted by churches, um, that are intended for congregational singing. And as the result of the um, uh, worship music being taken up into the heart of the Christian music industry, not Shortly uh, thereafter, you have what you might call a crisis of authenticity, where people start to wonder, have, uh, you know, uh, have these people sold out? Um, How can I trust this issue of trust, you know, where these songs are coming from? And there are some fascinating um, accounts from people in the uh, in the music industry. There was one, say one particular um, record company I know that in, I think it was 2008 or 2009, that all of their worship artists, they made a a top-down decision that you must be grounded in a local church, that they were getting flack because, you know, well, these artists are touring everywhere, but where's your, you know, where's your heart for ministry? Where's your experience? Is this song coming out of a place of, uh, of, of actual interaction with actual people in a local congregation. And so top down, uh, some of these artists, no lie, got assigned to church um, that some of these assignments worked <laughs> worked better than others. 
But so you see this crisis of authenticity where um, the the into in order to be a successful worship uh, worship leader who is on the concert circuit, the people at that you know within the concert have to trust that uh, the person's um, motives are uh, wants to lead people in worship and you know not make a ton of money or not make a name for themselves so they have to distance themselves from some of the trappings of popularity while obviously you know embracing others and so the concert space is this is this uh, fascinating place where you know you have someone with um, stage lights on them you've got fog machines you've got you know state of the art audiovisual um, uh, equipment be, uh, being used and you have the person on stage saying over and over and over again like a mantra, I am not here to perform for you. I am not here to perform for you. I'm not here. I'm not an artist. I'm a worship leader. So uh, so I started after attending a lot of these concerts, I started to kind of put this together that, okay, in order for this person to um, to be successful, they have to distance themselves. What are the mechanisms that they use to try to establish their authenticity as a worship leader? So I look at over the course of this chapter, I look at some of these these mantras um, that that are used verbally. You know, kind of uh, the disavowal of fame, um, and I look at the way that that influences the songs themselves. That these disavowals of fame. Um, can be read, if you will, in the very uh, song lyrics that the worship leaders are coming up with and singing, trying to displace the fame that comes from Christian celebrity culture from themselves onto God. That's fascinating, Monique. So similar to the concert is the conference, which is the subject of your next chapter. In many ways, the concert and the conference are using some of the same trappings, but but you note that conferences serve a very different function in the faith of, of many different believers. What are some of those key differences for the, the conference congregation? Yeah. So the conference, conference and concert congregations, there's a lot of continuity between those because oftentimes there are at conferences you could consider them a string of many you know many concerts uh you know in the morning and and in the evening but the the main the difference and the sort of the different um analytical rubric that um that that people that grew out of my field research at these conferences talking to people listening to the discourse from the stage is that um attendees to conferences think of it as um as a pilgrimage experience they think of it as something that they do um that they travel to a place um and and granted you know it's different from a uh traditional pilgrimage in that in some of the, the geographical place doesn't matter it's more the it's the experience that is the the experience and the um you know the, the teaching that uh that comes with it that is the center of the pilgrimage but this is a way that people um that you know conference pilgrims themselves talk about it this is also the way that they are encouraged to frame it from um from the stage you know uh and and one um, one aspect of um, 
of the experience that's at the center of the pilgrimage is uh, the the image and the imagination of heaven. Heaven is a um, is a dominant theme. People, uh, you know, look around you and try to imagine heaven. You'll see a screen, uh, you know, say, or you'll have uh, worship leaders who, in between the songs, you know, talk about the mighty throng that gathers at the the throne of God at the end of time, uh, comprised of every tongue, tribe, uh, and 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 race of people. And uh, you hear these same things being echoed from congregants. You know, I sent out a, a survey after one of these events and just person after person were saying, you know, it was like a taste of heaven. This is what heaven's going to be like. And so conferences in particular, I think because they are, number one, you know, pr- prolonged, this is more than just a two or three hour concert. This is many days of intense uh, religious experience. And much of which the participatory element, I think one of the things that's crucial, you know, for, uh, for our purposes here is that the mode of participation for the most part is singing. You know, I counted up (laughs) in these, a couple of conferences that I, uh, that I went to conferences for, uh, for college students, kind of the 18 to to 25 year old age range. I counted up and, uh, if people are participating in each of the main sessions, they're singing somewhere between four and and six hours a day. It's, yeah. And so what they sing then was like a traditional pilgrimage, you know, pilgrims like to take home souvenirs, right? Of their, of their experience, things with them that they can use to recreate um, and in their <laughs> local settings, as well as to remember the music becomes a uh, a token of that pilgrimage where people take home yeah. these albums and when they listen to them they recall particular moments or th- things that they were they were praying or things that they believe God revealed to them and uh, and they embed them in different contexts for you know for that reason it was um, out of their their pilgrim experience that these songs become transported to local contexts. Well, speaking of local church, that is exactly where you go with your next chapter. So you have this extended case study of how one church in a, in a denomination that tends to shy away from evangelical theology or, or maybe just contemporary worship music more broadly, uh, how this church, St. Bartholomew's in, in Nashville, had pursued a unique approach of uh, reappropriating and repackaging the industrial product or artifact of of contemporary worship music. Tell us about what you observed in this congregation in Nashville and and what it tells us about how particular congregations operate within this broader landscape of of musical production. Yeah. So the local church, and uh, and I thought it was appropriate, also in the ordering, there are five case study chapters. The, The church is the third, is kind of at the heart of um, of, of the of the uh, of the book, uh, <laughs> and this this church also. So another way that the church was the heart. This this was my congregation um, in in Nashville. This was my own congregation that I initially uh, didn't set out to make a specific case study about it uh, because I, as I mentioned in the in the book's introduction, I mean I was have been am. <laughs> 
on a, um, kind of on a on a journey and my trajectory you know through the period that I was researching and writing was one of of increasing distance really from from the evangelical uh, worship tradition and so choosing an Episcopal church um, which is you know part of mainline Protestant um, tradition that was one kind of mode of, you know, distancing myself from the phenomenon, or so I thought that it was distancing myself. And then, then uh, at this church, uh, it considered itself, I'm not sure it would use this designation um, today, at the time that uh, that I attended um, about a decade ago, it described itself as evangelical Episcopal. In some ways, it could be considered, um, you might put it in the post-evangelical, um, a lot of people who had come from uh, Baptist uh, non-denominational, uh, other kinds of, of backgrounds that were, um, whether for issues, whether for, um, you know, theological or, um, or political ideas were changing or, you know, for very practical reasons, like I'm a Methodist and I married a Catholic. We need, you know, we need somewhere to, uh, to worship together. Um, this had become a home for, Kind of a, a, a motley a motley group of mostly non cradle um, Episcopalians, and it was only kind of as I as I worshipped and as I um, participated in the music ministry. I was a regular um, pianist, you know, singer in the choir um, at, at this church. That I realized there are some really some fascinating dynamics at work in this congregation. You know, that are you know, yes, some of them are specific to a mainline Protestant church that's reconciling, trying to reconcile its history of being a center for charismatic renewal and then having all of these kind of non-charismatic evangelicals at it. Um, so there are some distinct things about the church's history that I bring out. But then there are some um, some general ideas and some general processes that I think are uh, widely applicable to um, a variety of churches, just how you navigate, how an individual uh, church congregation navigates its own institutional history, <laughs> as well as its uh, network, um, it, its network or its uh, denominational ties, while uh, and how it uses music to do that. And that was one of the things that I found at this congregation is that uh, worship music, evangelical worship music was used in some ways symbolically as to say, you know, this is an important part of who we are. It's not all of who we are. <laughs> and here are some other types of music that connect us to different networks. We sing Taizé, you know, we sing, uh, you know, songs out of the um, 1982 Episcopal hymnal, um, you know, with big organ fanfare and everything else. And so, and so I thought it was interesting how this music um, becomes a symbol for, um, you know, a symbol for certain values that the congregation holds, but that it's not seen as able to encapsulate all of them. That's great. And then moving to the last two case studies, you've you've taken us from the from the concert to the conference all the way down to the congregation and and now we we go back out again to to the the praise marches and and YouTube. So, how is music functioning to form and shape community when worship uh, takes the streets or the broadband networks? Yeah. 
Well, uh, when it uh, when worship enters, uh, so the first three spaces are, um, you know, as you've you know as, as you've just implied, these are um, where the uh, uh, people with similar um, beliefs, similar um, practices are coming together, and um, you know, and so, and solidifying those. In the last two cases all of a sudden worship becomes something that is visible to others. You have uh, people outside um, the community or at the margins of the community to, to consider. So with the, with the praise march, the purpose of this, this praise march, as with many others, well, say, shouldn't say it has one purpose. It has many purposes depending on who you talk to, but um, it is, to represent, in some ways, represent the church, represent the church as unified um, in one area to the surrounding um, society in order to, with an evangelistic purpose, you know, trying to bring people in, as well as a, um, again, depending on your on your theology here, for a lot of the um, charismatic members, a kind of a spiritual warfare component of taking worship out into the streets and thus, um, you know, testifying to the uh, the worldly principalities and and powers, and reinforcing the the dominance of um, you know of God over these. So, but something unique that you run into with the um, with bringing worship to the streets, I put it right after the church chapter because in some ways it's multiple individual church congregations that are coming together and and trying to struggle with. Hey, how do we represent? We want to represent ourselves as unified. You know, we are the Christians of Toronto, <laughs> um, but at the same time, we're coming from all these different denominations. In the case of this, um, in the case of this praise march, um, also coming from um, you know different ethno linguistic groups, so uh, markedly diverse. So how do we? How do we reconcile this unity? Um, unity with diversity. Diversity um, within unity and one way, sort of unsurprisingly, that they do that is through um, through the music that they choose and talking to the the different people who are responsible for their church's musical choices here. You know, they would talk about being very careful with the balance. They say, we want something that represents our church. You know, so we did this number of songs in Korean or this number of songs in Ukrainian or whatever else, but we want something that is going to link us to the other churches that we're marching with. So that's why we did, you know, this Hill song or, you know, this Chris Tomlin song or, uh, or whatever else. And so you see this, you see people, and then you also want, um, a, you know, some degree of reaching out to people outside a church setting. So people would inner work, you know, interesting, you know, uh, Michael Jackson, the bass lines into the, uh, the introduction of, of certain songs, or they would put in um, amazing grace or things that they, they felt would be, would be widely known. So it's really that the outside, knowing that there are people outside the community looking in that conditions the, uh, you know, the musical choices that are made during the, um, the parades and, and to some extent, um, online spaces. So with online, um, online worship, it of course depends on whether you're talking about live stream services of which there are many, and you probably have fewer, you know, um, fewer, you probably, you have some 
curious people, but uh, but not as many people are going to tune into a live service as say, um, you know, troll a uh, a YouTube um, music video. <laughs> so you also have uh, you know watching the comment streams on YouTube music. Uh, worship music videos is fascinating because you have this this mixture of I mean it is this very public um, form of worship where you have you go from a couple of comments that are like I'm raising my hands at the computer screen and uh, you know I'm this song makes me cry or um, you know I was at you know the pilgrimage stories right where I was at the conference where this song was recorded and I remember what it was like to you know be among that throng of you know, 20,000 voices or whatever else. So amidst those, you also have, you've got the trolls coming in saying your God is stupid or, you know, saying whatever trolls say, and then people responding to them and, uh, you know, and evangelizing. So it's just this, it's uh, online provides this opportunity that, especially in North America, that we just don't have of sort of open air, <laughs> open air, um, you know, worship because of the way that, uh, you know, that our communities and cities are uh, are designed. It's, it's much more difficult to, you know, have regular gatherings where people who are interested what on earth is going on here can just you know, kind of uh, come up and uh, and enter a conversation. But I do see that happening online. That's such a fascinating way of thinking about public space and the comment threads, which, uh, oh man, are always a scary, wild, dangerous, fun, exhilarating place. All of them. On the World Wide Absolutely. Web. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, well, Monique... I'm so glad that you could come and share with us about your book. And I'm sure that listeners have already gotten a sense that there's so much more in the, in the case studies that is ready for them to explore. And if they go could get a copy of the book. And so I just encourage people to go and, and get that so they can dive even deeper into the wonderful research that you've done. And, but before we go, I wonder if you would just be willing to share with us a little bit about what you're working on the moment. Yeah, sure. Uh, so a couple of things and a couple of things that I would encourage um, listeners to, to check out as well. So um, I'm interested, this book is, you know, of course, we've talked a lot about evangelicals and evangelical, um, you know, worship, but uh, kind of congregational um, music more generally is something that my work has focused on. And I'm very interested in interdisciplinary and um, international approaches to congregational music making. And so to um, to that end, one of the things I'm involved in is uh, being one of the organizers of the Christian Congregational Music Conference. This conference meets uh, biennially um, in, uh, in usually in Oxford uh, for obvious reasons this year we chose to uh, to make this will be our first virtual conference and it's taking place the uh, over two weeks we have an asynchronous first week where we'll have a number of papers and there are you can uh, congregationalmusic.org very easy to find you can um, log into our um conference page to see um to see what kinds of uh, what kinds of papers are there we have eight themes you know congregational music making and and well-being uh global gospel um congregational music and covid 
um, uh, among among many others. And so we are again trying to encourage this international interdisciplinary perspective that includes both people of coming from faith perspectives, Christian or other religious perspectives, as well as those not coming from um, uh, from faith backgrounds or or perspectives. I think a lot of times um, there has been this divide, at least in my experience, between um, conversations about you know a church music or congregational music taking place among. Christians among insiders, and then those conversations that are taking place among, you know, kind of quote unquote secular academic, you know, social sciences and humanities. And this conference tries to bring those conversations um, together in in one place. And I'm always amazed by the the kinds of work and the fruitful connections that can be made, you know, when you bring people together across those lines. So please check congregationalmusic.org. Our conference is this summer. Very excited about it. We have an asynchronous week, as I mentioned, and then a synchronous week with, um, I think we've got nine plenary talks. We've got some interactive music making sessions, groups from um, from Latin America, from the UK, from, um, from other places who will be um, leading various kinds of congregational um, song. So that's one thing. Uh, another thing that I've been working on is the I am senior editor for the Congregational Music Studies series, which is a, a book series with Routledge Press. And we have, uh, say, I should have uh, should have looked up exactly how many books we, we now have in the series there. Are, I know there are three coming out right now. So I know that my number is going to be, um, if I tried to come up with one would be would be um, a bit off, but our third, no, our fourth edited volume that's part of the series is called um, Studying Congregational Music, Key um, Issues, um, Theories, and uh, and Methodologies. And that Studying Congregational Music, I co-edited that with two of my colleagues, and it is intended as an introductory as a handbook for researchers. We outline six different methods for studying congregational music from um, ethnography to liturgical history to music analysis to media studies. Um, so a number of different uh, different approaches. And then we talk about um, key issues or lenses through which we can look at congregational um, music. So um, things like um, race, ethnicity, and gender, and diaspora, and and some of these uh, those lenses. So I'm particularly excited about that book. I'm planning to use it in one of my own graduate courses uh, this fall because you know in, introduction to research in uh, in congregational song. It's kind of the textbook for uh, for that. <laughs> so those are those are a couple of a couple of upcoming things. Well, those both sound like wonderful projects. Maybe we can have you and the editors on at some point to talk about that excellent new volume. Well, this has been a conversation with Monique Ingalls talking about her new book, Singing the Congregation, How Contemporary Worship Music Forms Evangelical Community, available now from Oxford University Press. Monique, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of New Books in Christian Studies. You can go to our website at newbooksnetwork.com to find more great author interviews. And of course, if you enjoyed this episode, the most valuable thing that you could do is think of someone who might find the conversation that we've been having here today interesting. 
and send them a link. It's the best way that you can support what we're doing here at the New Books Network. That's it for now, and I hope you have a great day.